You're listening to a podcast by New Heights Church. We hope you're encouraged to glorify, grow, and go. All right, well, we're going to be looking, as you heard, at 1 Peter 5, 6 through 14. And uh, Peter is ending the letter today, I, I think, giving us a beautiful snapshot of what Christian living uh, looks like. Uh, giving the doctrinal truths we have seen thus far, Peter lays out how Christians ought uh, to live, and he's exhorting the Christians who read this letter, that's including you and I, uh, to way of existing. And so I hope that you can take note of these things, and there are three points to help us in that endeavor. It is be humble, be watchful, and be together. Let us pray before we unpack his word. Lord, we come to you at your throne of grace, and we just ask, Lord, that you use your word to sanctify us, to bring us to repentance, to bring us to rejoicing in you, and let it train us up in righteousness, God. Um, this time is set aside for you and to learn about you and to praise you and worship you. And I pray that we can do that not only in song, but also in our hearts and minds as we uh, observe your word. Lord, we love you. And you see, we pray. Amen. So the first point we see is to be humble. I actually want to start where Will ended off last week. Uh, if you remember, Peter had told the, the listeners as he transitioned from uh, talking about the conduct uh, of elders to uh, beginning to talk about the conduct of all believers. He wrote in verse 5, he says, All of you, all of you, clothe yourselves with humility towards one another because God opposes the proud but shows favor to the humble. Now, that's a simple enough statement, right? A little warning given that if you're proud, guess what? God opposes you. Likewise, a little bit of encouragement to those who are humble. God is for you. But Peter's not quite done with the topic. Let's look at verse 6. It says, Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you. So again, a few things that we're seeing in two verses about humility. If you don't have it, God opposes you. If you do, God is for you. And if you do, God is going to exalt you in his timing. It sounds like humility is something that we might want. Humility, simply put, is to make yourself low. It's to understand your weakness, your inability, and to come to grips with your dependency on the Lord. It's it is to look at all that you have, both in skills and possessions, your strengths, your weaknesses, and know its source. Now, I think humility is given for, or is difficult to understand for several reasons. And not by the which, is one of them is, uh, you've heard people say that once you think you are humble, you cease to be humble. I don't know if that is necessarily true. Remember, Peter's telling them to be, it's, it's an active exhortation. Put on, clothe yourself with humility. You know what it is. You need to be this. You need to be humble. But it's difficult to do, I think, because pride is ever present in the heart of a sinner. We do not want to be made low. That doesn't sound fun or enjoyable. And true humility is not natural. In fact, I think humility is what really the world objects when it comes to the gospel. Think about it. When you, when you speak to someone who does not know Christ and you tell them 
what the gospel says about them, that they're a sinner and they deserve hell, that message seems quite mean, quite harsh. In fact, I read an article, it was a, by Psychology Today, that said that message, that in our nature we are evil sinners who deserve hell, is child abuse. I say that to say that the Christian view of humility is objected still. They, it, is, it is opposed by the world. And partly I think that's why it's sometimes difficult to grasp The nature of humility, of Christian humility, is difficult because of its nature, but also because there's also lots of false humility, especially in Christendom, to the point where you might begin to think, okay, when I think of someone who's humble, what exactly does that look like? What does that appear to be? Will spoke last week about the qualifications of elders, right? And one of them was, you know, gave an example of the pastor, and you hear it sadly far too often. Uh, someone saying, oh, I didn't want to be a pastor. Oh, God chased me down. I told him no once, twice, three times. I ran away. I had no intentions, but God had to have me on his team. So I humbly submitted. That's an example of false humility. Fishing for compliments, if that's you, right? That's an example of false humility. That's sinful, that's not real humility. That's not what you're called to. This is something I see a lot just in the church. I had, uh, I'm a bit absent-minded at times, and uh, I had... I was going to and fro from the car. I was getting things packed up, taking things out of the car. I had like 15 meetings. That it was like it was one of those days where I, I just put too much in one day, and and it was a, there was a lot going on, and my mind was every which way, and I, I run out to the car and I and I and I have my laptop in my hand and you know I do what we all would do. I set the laptop right on top of the car, and I'm like, oh, I don't have my car keys. I might need those. So I run back inside, I get my car keys, I jump in the car, and we've all been there. You drive down the road, laptop on top of the car. Take a turn, and I hear a thump. Don't even think about it. I'm like, what was that? You know? And my laptop goes skidding away. I get a phone call, probably the next day or two, um, of, and I get this guy. He, uh, he calls me up and says, um, I think I found your computer. In fact, funny story. He actually, he actually calls Will and says, hey, I found this computer by the side of the road. I opened it up. It says Jeremy Berry. Does that sound right? And Will's like, yeah, it does. <laughs> it, it sounds just like him, in fact. So he, called, he meets me, and I'm deeply grateful uh, that he brought me this, this laptop. And I tell him, like, man, I can't believe this. It actually, well, that's a different story. It wasn't working until it flew off the car and then started working again. It was great. So I'm like, this is amazing. This is such great news. And, and he says, uh, um, I said, thank you so much. And he goes, whoa, whoa, don't thank me. You need to thank God. I said, well, I can, I'll thank you both. I'll thank you and I'll thank God. He goes, no, do not thank me. God's the one who did it. I, he, all I am, he, I am simply a vessel. He gave me the, the I wrote it down, he gave me this, the uh, uh, eagle-like eyesight. That's, a, that's, a, that's an example of, of false humility. 
It's not, it's not uh, humble to reject the compliment. It's not humble to not see your strengths. It's not humble to be poor or to dress a certain way. That has nothing to do with humility. Nor does it require you to have a self, you know, a poor image of yourself. That has nothing to do with humility. I think oftentimes when we think of individuals of who we would say are humble, we think of like the monk or the nun, right, who live in poverty, who have foregone sort of uh, advantages of the world. But all of that, none of that is humility. Humility is a posture of the heart. It's a posture of the heart. And scripture emphasizes this all throughout. James 4.10 says, Humble yourselves before the Lord. He will exalt you. Luke 18.14, For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. It's a similar message, isn't it? But why does the Lord stress humility so much? First, as discussed already, the gospel is a humbling message. So it stresses it because if you're going to accept the gospel, you do need to humble yourself and realize you need a savior. But secondly, as Christians, humility is the key for usefulness in the kingdom of God. You're not going to be useful in the kingdom of God if you refuse to be humble. You're called to love your family. So therefore, you must humble yourself and serve them, putting their welfare above your own. You're called, right? We're called to love our church. And I must serve and care for this local body, loving my neighbor as myself. I'm called to use my spiritual giftings for the body. I'm called to use my finances for the body. I'm called to use my time for the body. All of this requires humility. You cannot tear humility away from the gospel, nor from Christian living. And so we say we value humility, but I think if we're honest, we don't really want humility for ourselves, right? Often it's the trait we want other people to have. Right? Oftentimes, I can't, I don't know many who sit around and go, man, I'm just not very humble. Usually they see the lack of humility in everyone around them. I have a, someone I, I love gave me a really funny example of this. And they said this in jest, at least I think, I hope so. But they, uh, it's a good exaggerated example of what I mean. It was, it was a mother and a daughter and the mother, they were sitting on the couch and the, the mother turned to her daughter and said, sweetheart, you need to learn to be more humble. And you learn, you need to learn how to be more serving. So with that being said, can you get me a glass of lemonade? <laughs> and that's typically where we are. We really, I need to see the, the lack of humility in somebody else. And that's not where our heart should be. Put uh, verse 6 back up on the screen. It says that 
the humble will be exalted. Now, what on earth does that mean? That sounds nice. Though, let's be honest, right? Think of when the Lord has humbled you in the past. It doesn't always feel like you're being exalted, right? If you've ever been humbled by a situation or by somebody else, it doesn't always feel that great. We were playing basketball this past Wednesday. It was after the women's Bible study, and we were over there, the guys who stayed after, they were all playing. And uh, I was doing all right. I made a couple points this time, you know. I didn't make a total fool of myself. But I was, uh, I was playing hard, and I was like, I'm doing all right. I'm doing pretty good. It's getting kind of, you know, yeah. And um, <laughs> there's one point where there's like a breakaway. Will gets the ball, and he starts running straight at me. And it's only me that protects him from making the shot. Now, I sat there, and I, and I started doing like a pro-cons list because he moves kind of slow, so I had time. And I was thinking, what? Why, what? Okay, I'm about to be humbled. <laughs> the Lord has made me vertically low, so I'm about to be humbled. But the question really was, what degree of humiliation do I want to experience? And so he's running. And at the last minute, I, all I did, it was like... It, it was just, it just came out. I said, don't kill me. And I like threw myself out the way. And that's often, I think, when we, the idea of being humble doesn't, it usually never comes with an exaltation. So what does it mean that we're going to be exalted? First, I would not hold my breath waiting for an exaltation on this side of heaven. Though you may experience a shadow of what is to come, but I think ultimately what's being talked about here is the grand exaltation where you rule alongside Jesus Christ for eternity. Now, I want you to think about that for a second, about what I just said. You and I, who have to humble ourselves at the foot of the cross, who yell up to heaven, Lord, I can do nothing good apart from you. I would never have pursued you. My heart was evil, and I warred against you. You saved me from the Father's wrath because I loved you supreme, or because I love sin supremely. Right? We were dead fools until He gave us life, but Scripture says there's an exaltation of sinners like us who are declared righteous and made co-heirs with Jesus. This, this exaltation has not simply bend the knee and you will live. It's bend the knee to the king, you will live, and even you will judge angels. Think of that exaltation. Exalted to a place we don't deserve, to a role that we ought not have except it's given to us by a benevolent king. And truly, we can't fathom that. We cannot fathom that we, who are corrupted and sinful, would ever be exalted to such a place. And of course, this exaltation happens not on our timetable, but his, and the humble are okay with that. Let's go to verse 7, though I want to read part of verse 6 to put it in context. It says, humble yourselves, therefore, under uh, the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you. Verse 7, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. So Peter goes from humility to anxiety, and I think the two are very much connected. 
it should be noted here that anxiety is not sinful. And I want to point this out because this is something that's often, I think, circulated by people. They got taught this somewhere that somehow the emotion of anxiety is sinful. I, I don't see where anywhere in Scripture where it, it says that. In fact, our Lord Jesus experienced anxiety, right? He sat in the garden before he was taken away from the crucifixion. And Scripture says in Luke twenty-two forty-four, 44, and being in agony, he prayed more earnestly and his sweat became like great drops of blood falling down to the ground. Mark 14, 34, my soul was very sorrowful, he tells his disciples, even to death, remain here and watch. Anxiety builds in Christ, causing emotional and physical stress, causing sorrow. But watch what he does when he's met with these overwhelming sense of anxiety. Luke twenty-two forty-two, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. First, Jesus humbles himself and goes to the Father in prayer, knowing that God exalts the humble in his timing. And so Jesus shows us, not only in his death, but often in his life, what real, true Christian humility looks like. And furthermore, what casting anxieties looks like. And he knows what Peter tells us in in chapter 5, verse 7, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. And some of you need to be reminded of that, that the Lord cares for you. And that which brings anxiety is meant to be a sounding alarm to you. It's meant to sound the alarm that you need to bend the knee and pray to your king and trust the one whose will is to be done. Not our will, but his, for his glory and our good. Anxiety exists to usher you before the throne of grace. We see what Jesus does when he's facing anxiety. What does it do? It causes him to pray. The same should be said of us, that when we're feeling anxious, that's where we go to. We humble ourselves in prayer. And it's not comfortable, but let's be honest. When do you pray the hardest? Nothing keeps me in prayer more than when I cannot control what's going on around me. Anxiety is meant to humble you. It's meant to show you, listen, you can't change this. You cannot help this. You cannot heal this. Guess what? It's just too big for you. In that moment, we see anxiety swell when the reality sits in that, man, there's nothing I can do. I can't control anything. So if you cannot control it, why don't we go to the one who controls all? Recalling that he who humbles will be exalted. Again, maybe not in this life. Those things that cause you anxiety, they may not be lifted from you on this side of heaven. But you must put your eyes on eternity and knowing that 
What causes you the greatest anxiety? These things will not last forever, right? These two shall pass. My daughter was told recently, I don't know why someone did this. You ever, like, sometimes you're like, why did you tell that story to my child, you know? Someone told my kid about someone breaking into a home and shooting somebody. My nine-year-old child, I don't know why. Like, I'm like, what's wrong with you? So this caused, has caused a bit of an issue in the old Barry home. Uh, my daughter, we have like something called Alexa. I don't know if it's what it's called, but you say to it Alexa and it talks back to you. I just call it Alexa. But we have one of those things. And uh, you can play music on and a bunch of other things. This is not a commercial, I promise. Uh, uh, my daughter sends me texts from it. So lights out are at like, a, is at like 9.30 and I'll get little texts on my phone. And because of she knows the story of something horrible happening, I'll get these texts going, is the back door locked? Is the front door locked? What about the garage door? And she starts worrying that someone's going to break in our house. She said, well, Dad, what if they break in? I said, well, I'll kill them till they die from. She goes, well, what if they shoot you first? I'll, you know, and I, it just keeps going down. It's, it's like the, the fear of someone breaking in has taken over bedtime. And eventually she's like, Dad, let me go check the doors just so I know. And I'm like, sweetheart, you have to trust me. You have to trust your dad. You have to trust me. You are safe. Now, many of us, if we're honest, are like Claire. It's, whether it's the day-to-day events going, God, you got this? Or, God, are you watching? What are you doing? Or if it's international events where caught, what, what, that makes people fear and fret about nuclear war, that makes us an anxious mess Things that you can do nothing about. Things you can't control. That are beyond you. Both in scope and distance. And so, sometimes you just have to say, I trust you, Dad. Dad, I trust you. Trust your Father in heaven who says in Scripture that he works all things out according to the counsel of his will. Humbly, casting anxieties is much to do with trust. What is interesting, I think, just about our culture is that we may be the most secure people in history, but probably the most anxious people in history. I just find that I find this fascinating. When you go back and read, like I love reading about like the Wild West. Uh, I would never make it, but I would love reading about it. Uh, but but like, like, you know, whether it was hunting for food um, or whether it's, you know, winter wasn't just an inconvenience because my windshield got frozen. No, it's, it's like this winter meant death. Like, there, like everything was harder. We live... Whether it's modern medicine, whether it's technology, we are the mo- we have doorknobs that literally watch people come to our door and take pictures of them. We are the most secure people ever, but also the most anxious. Now, the root word that's used here in Scripture, the, the word is anxiety, and it means to divide. And I think that's exactly uh, what's happening. Uh, we are 
attention is divided and it often can pull us from our source of comfort and what scripture uh, tells us that we need to resist that pull and realize how small we are and trust in God's plan. And though that may be terrifying in the short term, for the long term, we can look at it and say, well, who wins this story? Who wins? We know we're on the winning side, but there are so many distractions, so much that feeds into our anxiety. And when I say there's a lot of distractions, it's whether it's social media or whatever it is that we constantly feed and put into our minds, it distracts us from looking to the one who is bigger than the issue. And because we lack in humility, so often that anxiety stays. And because we forget anxiety's purpose, we don't go to him in prayer, and we forget the beautiful words Peter writes at the end of verse seven, that we're to cast our anxieties on God because he cares for you. The next point is to be watchful. Let's start out in verse eight. It's pretty clear. It says, be sober-minded, be watchful. All right, sober-minded, simply put, you need to control your mental faculties. You need to be in control of them and do not let your judgment be clouded and pay attention. Peter tells you why you need to be sober-minded. Listen very carefully. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him firm in your faith. So why does he say we are to be watchful? Because there is the devil and those who do his bidding that are seeking someone to devour. Now, think about this. This is a, kind of a weird timing to put this in here because a second ago, he's like, be humble. Don't, you know, cast your anxieties on the Lord. Also, you're being hunted, right? Seems like a weird time to throw that in. But actually, it's the perfect time to show you once again, there's things beyond you and you must go to the one who's in control. Now, we see here the devil is described. They use an interesting word. The word is adversary. It just means opponent. But uh, in Greek, it was a legal term. It was used in a lawsuit. It was, uh, it was the one who was accusing, who was acting like the prosecutor. And I think it's interesting that Peter uses a legal term, a prosecutor term to describe the devil, because uh, you know in Scripture, Jesus is also described in legal language. 1 John 2, 1 says, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. The, the way that scripture paints the spiritual courtroom is that Jesus is your counselor, your defense, your advocate, while the devil is the prosecutor. In fact, Revelation speaks to this as well in verse 10. It says, for the accuser of our brother has been thrown down, who accuses them day and night before our God. So this, this devil works against God's children. He's accusing, right? Malicious in his accusations. He accuses us before God, lying to God about us. And he lies to us about God. We see that since the beginning when he spoke to Adam and Eve, when the, the serpent says, did God really say that? Did God really mean that? So Peter makes it clear that we need to watch 
Watch out for the one who seeks to deceive. What else does Peter say about this devil who is doing, uh, who's prowling and accusing us? He says that he's roaming the earth. He's looking on a relentless search for victims desperate to devour. It reminds me of Job chapter one. If you ever read Job in the beginning, uh, God asked Satan, where have you come from? Or in other words, what are you doing? And Satan responds to him going, from going to and fro on the earth and from walking up and down on it, looking to devour. That's what he's doing. He's looking. So scripture is clear on what we are to do. We are to be watchful. But for what exactly? Watchful for the devil? What's that even mean? Do we know what we're to be watching for? I think, and maybe I'm wrong, that we've been influenced so much by film and fiction that we have an almost cartoonish view of this. What we think that Peter's saying is that Christians, you need to sit around and watch, watch out for paranormal activity or for heads to start spinning. And that's not to say possessions aren't real. They most certainly are. Scripture speaks of them. Though you who are indwelled with the Holy Spirit do not need to be worried about being possessed by the devil. You're already possessed by God. And remember, Peter is writing the Christians, so that's not what he's talking about. He's not telling them to look out for these horror you know, movie-type scenes where the ground's opening up and Satan and his demons are dragging you down in it. What they and you must be watchful for are demonic ungodly, evil philosophies and ideas and wicked false teachers who work on behalf of the devil. Far less subtle than the spinning heads, but just as dangerous. Philosophies that want to redefine God's created order, that want to destroy any concept of objective truth, Our area, community, country, world is littered with false teachers who twist scripture and confuse many, leaving nothing but destruction in their wake. And it is these things that have swallowed up and completely devoured many because they were not watchful. Leading them astray, confused, and at least weak in the midst of a spiritual fight. So let me be clear about a few things. When Peter says, be watchful for the devil, first, you need to know that Satan works through other people. And I know that sounds mean and harsh. But listen, Christ himself says, if you're not my child, then your father is the devil. There's no middle ground, right? The spirits are lost. They're slaves to Satan. There's no gray. It's black or white. I don't paint that, the Lord does, because that's the spiritual reality that we live in. And it's not that the lost willingly do the devil's bidding, but they inevitably do his bidding because they can do no other. To be watchful is to be careful who you let influence you and your family, what ideas 
influence you and your family, whether that be through entertainment or just through people who speak into our lives. Now listen, please don't hear me say go home and throw away all your secular CDs, though, listen, to be honest with you, I don't think it would be such a shame if we were a bit more picky on what we sing and what we watch. There's a great wisdom in not feeding on folly. There's a great, there's all, much of Proverbs speaks of it. Do not hear me say, lock your doors, hide your children, hide your wife, right? I'm not telling you to isolate yourself from the world. Listen, I, I, I think sometimes uh, that can come across that way. I homeschool our children. I do this because of conviction. I, I have a strong conviction about it. But I don't, des- I don't do it because I desire to create a bubble in which my kids don't learn about the world. I don't hide them from it. I, I, I tell them about the lies. They see the lies. And guess what? We talk about it through the lens of Scripture. My seven and nine-year-old, don't, they're not hermits like me. right? They see things. And guess what? We got to talk about those things. We've had to talk about anything and everything from transgenderism to racism, you name it, we've talked about it. I say that to say that being watchful doesn't mean to isolate. You're watchful so then you can correct and teach diligently to yourself, family, friends, those you love. To be watchful is not to be isolated. To be watchful is the ability to be on guard and discern what meets your eyes and your ears. Because you know, because scripture tells you, the devil is going to and fro looking for someone to devour. Scripture tells us that. How foolish would we be not to take that seriously? That he's going and working through men and women, giving them false gospels, wicked teachings that go against God's word to influence you and those around you. We'd be fools not to take it seriously. So we are watchful. And we're training for when we our little ones or ourselves are confronted with unsound doctrine and dangerous deceptions that we can be ready, standing firm in our faith so that we, with confidence, can reply to the deceiver just like Christ himself. It is written. The second thing I want to be clear on is the topic that, uh, to make sure we put Satan in his proper place. I think you can find yourself in, uh, easily in two camps, right? You can be preoccupied and obsessed with Satan, giving him far too much credit uh, and too much power and, and allowing it to foster fear. Uh, these are individuals, I think, who you know, blame Satan. Satan made me do it. Satan made me do it. I recently heard a woman say her Dell computer wasn't working, and she goes, I'm being attacked by Satan. I'm like, no, no. You just have a bad computer, right? Dell's a cruddy business product. Though, 
We are to take the devil seriously. We should not overexhaust ourselves with fear. Church, hear me clearly. Satan has no power over you. Zero power over you. Though a roaming lion, he's been restrained by the reality of the resurrection. He is a defeated foe who in his final days attempts to deceive as many as he can. So we're told to be watchful, not scared. Be on guard, but not frightened. Satan has been made a fool. And you Christian have been given the wisdom to see his traps. So we're not to overemphasize his power, but we are to take him seriously. The other camp you can fall into is the one of apathy towards Satan. You really give it no thought. You're not really watchful. I mean, you're not really sitting back going, what, are, what is my family feeding on? What, 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 what are my kids being taught? What are the things that are consuming their minds or consuming my mind? What am I watching paying attention to? Without any thought of your adversary roaming the earth. You presume the fullness of the world, it's not a big deal. Or maybe you're overly skeptical about demonic things. To be honest with you, that's where I struggle. But scripture's clear. And we have to take God seriously at his word. And whether it's not giving him thought or whether it's presuming the foolishness of the world is not a big deal or whether it's being skeptical, right? We need to repent of those things. Because he says to be watchful because there is much out there that is wicked. That is hunting you and your little ones. And again, only the fool ignores such warnings. But just to show you how little power your adversary has over you, James tells us, resist the devil and he will flee from you. Resist him and he will flee from you. Be watchful, stand firm, and let our prayer be that we can see the devil fleeing. Let's look at verse nine. I'm gonna again start a little bit uh, in verse eight and read the entirety of nine. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking to someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. Church, simply put, you're not alone. The battle that takes place in your life takes place in the life of every follower of Jesus. And it does help to know that you're not alone, that God's not picking on you. Your suffering is part of the story. And by the way, if you remember, we are in the midst of a battle. And who was ever on a battlefield and didn't expect to experience some degree of discomfort? I think we forget that we're in the midst of a battle and thus we're surprised by suffering. 10 and 11 of chapter 5. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. Peter puts it all into perspective, doesn't he? After you suffer, or maybe better put, when you suffer, Christ will put you back together. 
Jesus says, as he brought you back from the dead as you, when you were in your trespasses, he will take you who are beaten down and weak and he will strengthen you. He'll take you who have doubt and he'll confirm you and you who are weary from battle, Christ will establish you. Peter reminds us that in our suffering, he is still gracious and has a glorious eternal plan which by his mercy has made you and I a part of. <clears throat> the final point is be together. I'm reading verses 12 through 14. By Silvanus, a faithful brother, as I regard him, I have written briefly to you, exhorting and declaring that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. She who is at Babylon, who is likewise chosen, sends you greetings, and so does Mark, my son. Greet one another with a kiss of love. He mentions a few people here. We see Silvanus, a friend of Peter, who went with him on a second missionary journey, right? We have Mark, a, a child of the faith. He calls him his son, who is praying and thinking of the churches here in the Asia Minor. And then we see Babylon in these few verses, which is simply put, just Rome. That's the city of Rome. It's called Babylon for reasons that I won't get into now. But Peter says, in essence, listen, they're chosen like you. They look a little different. These saints are different than you, but they are chosen like you and they love you, they're thinking about you and they're praying for you. Each of these three, whether it's Sylvanus, Mark, or Babylon, each of these three show an importance of meaningful relationships. First off, we see Sylvanus being called a faithful brother, not just a good buddy to hang out with, not a funny guy, but a faithful Christian brother who has been an encouragement to Peter. And now he's willing to leave his home in Rome to go to these churches so they can be exhorted and encouraged by what Peter says is the true grace of God. That is what Peter has been reminding them the whole time in this letter. He's a trustworthy brother. Church, to be together is more than sitting side by side for an hour or so, listening to the band sing and listening to a fellow talk. Being together is far more than that. It is to humbly serve one another, to be watchful for one another, to enjoy, to love, to invest, and to fight alongside one another. And my prayer for myself and for you is that we could be called faithful brothers and faithful sisters by other saints. That your humility and care will stand out to them and that they know they can depend on you to care for them and to care for their soul. And so that's something I want to ask you. Can you be called that? Not, not can you be called a good friend or a good husband, a good dad, people really like you at work. Can you be called by anybody a faithful Christian brother?
It's an honor to be known as faithful to the good work of the gospel. And listen, it ought to be something we strive for. But besides the faithful brother, Peter points out the local church of Rome. Right? We see the, the church here uh, in Rome called Babylon who sends people out blessing and praying for other churches. The church in Rome understood that the kingdom was bigger than they were. That they had to humble themselves as a corporate body in order to pray and bless other churches. A corporate humility. They think, they pray and desire to bless their sister churches in Asia Minor where this letter was going to. So we should pray. And I, I don't mean like lip service pray, yeah, I'll pray for you. I mean like really pray, not just for this local body, but for our sister churches and any church that is gospel-centered, that proclaims Christ. Whether that's New Hill, our daughter church, New Haven, our daughter church, whom we sent out, or for other gospel preaching churches like Christ Covenant in Ashland, Covenant Church in New York, Redemption in Huntington, Mercy Village in Barsville, uh, or, or our, our brother Presbyterian Brothers, Redeemer in Scott Depot. We have had photographs in the back for months around, from missionaries around the world where you can scan a QR code and send a text or a prayer to them, encouraging them. And my hope is that we can do that. That we can say, okay, this is something we are called to do. Not just encourage it, but actually do it. When the pastor from Covenant Church in New York says, guys, I need you to pray for this. That we don't just watch it as a video before the sermon, but we take it seriously and say, yes, brother, we will pray for you, earnestly. My prayer is that we can do these things and that we can see and appreciate the work that's being done and to let them know, guys, you are not alone in Medina or Logan or New York, you're not alone. And we may not know you personally, but we are behind you and we are together in this fight. Finally, Peter mentions Mark, who he calls a son. And may our meaningful relationships manifest themselves in discipleship the way that Peter does with Mark, where we can be a part of someone's spiritual growth that we can be faithful to that mission. I want to remind you that the mission of the church is not just reaching lost people. The mission of the church is equally discipleship. We are to reach the lost, but also reach those whom God has chosen to love them and disciple them. I pray that we can be like a father who can see our spiritual sons go from spiritual adolescence to maturity. And what a privilege and a testimony that, could, that is. And listen, I could 
and almost desire to continue, but I know, I know the time. But I cannot stress to you enough, Christians, we're called to be together. In corporate worship, we're called to be together in discipling relationships. We're called to be together in faithful community. The Christian life was never, ever, never will be, never was, to be done alone or over a Zoom call or anything like that. Listen, if you're not a faithful brother or sister, if you're not considerate and prayerful for other gospel-centered churches, and if you're not producing sons of the faith through discipleship, listen, I'd ask you to repent. And just as you are commanded by your king to be humble, to be watchful, I'd ask that you make the effort to be together in a deeper and meaningful way. We hope you enjoyed the podcast. To learn more about New Heights Church or a relationship with Christ, please visit our website at www.newheightswv.com.